Welcome to It's a Good Life podcast, where it's all about helping entrepreneurs think, feel, and do better. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to It's a Good Life. We have a fun show in store for you today. We have a gentleman by the name of Bo Eason, and uh, Bo has a very unique background, to say the least, for this show today. Bo is dedicated to helping others tap into the power of their personal story, becoming effective and persuasive communicators. He actually started as an NFL second-round draft choice for the Houston Oilers that I was a fan of when I was living in Ireland, believe it or not. And uh, he came from UC Davis. And UC Davis is not like the Alabama of uh, getting people into the NFL. It's an agricultural school in Northern California. And he went on to be with the Houston Oilers, finished up with the uh, 49ers, had a brother play for the Patriots, uh, Tony Eason, very good player. And of course, right after he finished his playing career, he immediately wrote and performed his own one-man play on Broadway called Run to the Letter, which is a very well-worn path for NFL types as well. So he's a very creative guy, very innovative man, and a phenomenal motivator. He has a fabulous book out called There's No Plan B for Your A Game. What I really love throughout this book is Bo is really all about how to be the best in the world at what you do. And he's dedicated himself to study that, to study the people who are the best at what they do. And he has some great, great insights. Bo, welcome to the show today. I'm really, really excited for this interview. Thanks for having me, Brian. I'm glad to know you're an old kicking coach, so I love it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I have my old roots in football there as well. I had the real football where we don't wear shoulder pads. That's right. Yeah. Translated to the game with the shoulder pads. So, you know, before we dive into all the dynamics of plan B and, and how to be the best at what you do, give us a little bit of your backstory. You know, uh, you and your brother make the NFL. That tells me a lot right there, just about the kind of family environment you grew up in. I knew you grew up near Sacramento. Give us a little backstory on life in the East and home that kind of turned out you the way you are today. Yeah, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was typical of a, like a farming community. I grew up in a, a town called Walnut Grove mm-hmm. outside of Sacramento. It's got 725 people in the town. So our high school had like 220 people. Wow. Uh, and me and my brother, you know, we, we grew up the, the youngest of six kids. So we have four older sisters and then my brother, and then I'm the youngest wow. of six. So, you know, typical of a farming community, you know, we grew up on a ranch, a lot of farmers, grew up with farmers, kids, got, you know, big time work ethic, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. And my brother and I just had dreams, you know, of playing pro football and no one from our town and no one from our high school ever played, you know, any pro sport. Sure. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of parents would come over to my parents' house after hearing about our dreams and try to talk my mom and dad out of our dreams. Hmm. And they were soon, the es- uh, you know, soon escorted right to the door and asked to leave. Um, and that, you know, as I, at a pretty young age is when my brother and I realized that our dreams, our parents took really serious, mm. you know, they, they weren't like, they weren't treated lightly. They weren't treated like little fantasies. They were treated as legit mm. dreams that could actually come true, even though we had no evidence for it. Right. Even though we didn't know anybody who ever did that. How remarkable. I mean, how remarkable, you know, you're, they're farmers living in, you know, east of nowhere. Yeah. And yet you got, they got kids, they got big dreams and they're going to honor that as opposed to, you know, if the stereotypical picture would be, hey, you know, get yourself back on the tractor. 
Yeah, that was that was what most parents were talking. My parents are trying to talk my parents into. Right. It's like, hey, you know, don't, you know, give them a soft landing. Make sure yeah. they can farm these crops and, you know, grow these these crops. And and my dad was like, no, no, don't even talk to my kids. Don't talk to them. They're they wow. have dreams. And, Jeez. you know, it's fun. Funny enough, it, it worked out. I mean, against all odds, it worked out really uh, you know, if you look at the statistics, Brian, of the right. odds of that happening, it just right. statistically it yeah. can't happen. Yeah, my wife made the Olympic volleyball team, and she was a black gal from South Carolina. And I, I think they did the numbers one time, and it was like one in 172 million or something. And I, I would say the Eason boys making the NFL would have been even more astronomical. Yeah, it it really you know the the statistics are like this, Brian. So the statistics are there's 1.2 million high school football players in the country. 1.2 million, 0.03% play in the NFL. Well, off my high school team, this is going to sound crazy to you. So there's 27 farm boys on our high school team. In 100 years of football, not one played in the NFL before I got there. Jeez. Not one since I left. So a hundred years, more than a hundred years. But but check this check this out, Brian. How crazy this is! Four guys out of twenty seven played in the NFL off that one team. Only one year in a hundred years, Jeez. no one ever did. But one mm. one year, one team, four guys play in the NFL and not just in the NFL, they play for 25 years in mm. two Super Bowls. So, you know, everyone always said to us, like, what was in the water mm. during that year? Like what happened during that year? And I always go back. I always go back to our dreams and our plans. Uh, those 20 year plans, those declarations that we made way back then that other kids who may not have been dreaming about playing in the NFL kind of kind of grabbed on to our dreams and said, hey, if, if the, the Eason right. boys are going to be first round pick and a second, second round pick, then right. why can't I? It's the first believers, right? It's the first believers. And the next thing you know, it becomes yep. contagious. And, you know, you're talking about yep. being the best in the world at what you do. People who are the best in the world at what they do like to hang out with people who are the best in the world at what they do. And, uh, you know, right. Yeah, I, that's right. I, I watched one of your programs about separating the thoroughbreds from the donkeys. And, you know, it's right. Flying with the eagles or waddling with the ducks. And, and, you know, it doesn't matter where you're at. But in that environment, when someone believes and then someone does the work and then someone has the drive, that's contagious. That's contagious. And it's. Like you say, it doesn't mean that people who came before maybe didn't have some talent, but they didn't have the whole thing. They didn't have the talent plus the dream plus the drive plus the commitment to go do what needed to be done. But it can be done. It can be done and it can be done from anywhere. And, if you, you know, you went from there to UC Davis. And like I say, UC Davis, uh, no offense to UC Davis, but it's known for agriculture. It is not known. You know, there's been a couple of guys come out of UC Davis for sure. but. Uh, it's known as a football school. It is not uh, on the NFL watch list all the time. Uh, I doubt there's many UC Davis players today getting NIL contracts, name and image and likeness contracts. So how in the heck did you go from UC Davis? How, how did you, 
How did you rise above in that environment? Well, I, I never, you know, no one recruited me. So, you know, there's 350 uh, uh, colleges in the, in the country that play college football. Not one wrote me a letter, not one recruited me, right? So, but I'm trying to keep my dream alive. So I walked on at UC Davis because they were Division II football at that time and they, were, they didn't give any scholarships. So you could basically, they take anybody off the street. So I, I, I walked in there and I said, hey, I got a dream. I got a plan uh, to, pl- to, to be the best safety in the whole world. And they laughed and they said, well, you can, you know, play football for us. So I played a little football for them. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, I got a roommate. Uh, we started working together really hard. He, Kenny O'Brien was his name. First round oh, yeah, pick. Sure. First New round York pick. Jets. Yeah. Ken, uh, New York Jets. And we went in the same draft with my brother. So there were six right. quarterbacks in 1983 taken in the first round. That's never happened. John Elway, right. Dan Marino, my brother, sure. my roommate. So yeah. funny. Th- Elway, and Elway to Marino is a great show on yeah. uh, 30 for 30. I'm sure you've watched it. And yeah. people were like, who in the heck is Kenny O'Brien from UC Davis? And That's who's right. this guy? And who's yeah. Tony Eason, right? If you can play, they'll find you. Yeah, you know? that's true. And, and so that's that was the deal with Davis. I mean, they just they found us. We could play even though we were at a small school, a Division two school who, you know, never really had a much of a uh, pro player. Uh, you know, we came out of there and got to play. So it's, uh, you know, it's funny. It, um, the, the the great NFL players and I'm sure this is the great athletes of any uh, sport. We all have the same story, which is really, it's insane if you think about it, how this always, how does this happen? So I was watching an interview the other day. So I had the four top quarterbacks in the NFL, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, and Josh Allen, every one of them. So this is the head over heels better than anybody else in the league. Right. They all have the same exact story as each other have. And they have the same exact story that me, Kenny O'Brien, and my brother have. Meaning right. nobody wanted us. How could this yep. be? How, how, yep. could, how could it be that they're the greatest players of all time and yep. no one wanted them? No college, right. even the, half those guys went to junior colleges, Brian. Mm-hmm. That's why these late developers, man, I'm telling you, it's it's... It's there's a there's something that keeps reoccurring there that the the world just will not acknowledge. And that is the people who are in the business of getting better each and every day, each and every month, each and every year. Those are the guys who end up at the top. It's never Mm -hmm. it's never the golden child. It's never all those quarterbacks. Better, supposedly better than Kenny, better than Tony, better than Tom Brady, better than Dan Marino, all those guys who are supposedly better. You don't even know their names. You never heard of them because they they reached their peak at about 13 or 14 when they were named by ESPN to be the golden child and they're gone. Right. Because they talent. It's just talent. Right. They had talent and then they were told who they were. And then they stop getting better. And I, I, that's a great phrase, the business of getting better. Yeah. You know, my wife, I mentioned, was on the Olympic volleyball team. Well, in the 19, early 1980s, 
the U.S. volleyball team had only ever had one African-American, and she was almost seven feet tall. And my wife's five foot eight, an outside hitter, which is about, you know, about seven or eight inches too, too short, uh, and probably a foot short today. And she became an All-American, two-time All-American. She was rated number five volleyball player in the country. When they invited 64 girls to try out for the Olympics, she didn't get the invite. And, you know, just had it all of every coach she ever had write a letter. And the next thing you know, they said, well, if you stop writing this letter, we'll let you come. But you won't make the team. And, you know, but come for a tryout. And sure enough, they cut. She makes nine out of the 64. They cut the other 55 girls. And they're, well, you, you can get on the roster, but you're never going to be here. And five years later, she's the, you know, co-captain and this and that and the other in the U.S. Olympic team. So, you know, it is great that you bring this up because it is true. Because we, those of us who are not in the sporting world, who look and like to watch these guys on Sunday or whoever play sports, we think they're blessed a certain way, they're physically endowed a certain way, and the path just opens up. You know, Tom Brady's got a supermodel wife and he's played for 25 years and, you know, right? And, and it's easy that I think it's also, in, it's a cop-out in that it's very easy to go, these people are blessed yeah. a certain way. You know, I'm totally different than these people. And, you know, what you're talking about, and, and I want to get into a little bit of your book here for a second, is you're finding out, you know, we're all kind of the same, and we all have some choices to make. And one of the things that really struck me about your book, you talk about four declarations. And you talk about four declarations you made in your life. And it seems to me, that seems to be a pattern that comes up in people's lives. Tom Brady, there's a number of declarations that guy made. He still has the names of all the quarterbacks, you know, the Brady Six, the six quarterbacks that were drafted <laughs> before him. He's, you know, I'm like, let it go, Tom. You know, but apparently he still uses it to drive. You know, Michael Jordan's wife was in our coaching program and she would just talk about him making up these things and he'd have these declarations and these things that drove him. But it seems like you came onto this. Obviously, your first declaration was to play football, but maybe you could walk us through this, this whole concept of declaration and these four declarations you've made to get where you are today. Yeah, some people use the word goals. Some people use mission. I just, I like the word declaration. And, and I, I've always been kind of obsessed with the Declaration of Independence, hmm. only because, you know, it's been around for so long and you and I actually bring this document into existence by the way we live each day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We didn't write it, right? Like we didn't write it. Right. The, the, the founding fathers wrote it. But I thought, it, what if I wrote my own little declaration of independence hmm. stating who I am? Because all the declaration of independence do it. All it did was declare we were independent. We hmm. were free. And so I said, well, when I was a kid, I go, well, I want to be the best safety. I want to be the best free safety in the whole world, no matter what. And that was my declaration. I did it at a young age and I had time, right? Because my body and my mind wasn't ready for it yet. And I might, you know, I just couldn't do it. And I just started not chasing this goal or this declaration. I started being it. Right from day one, Brian, that's what's cool about a declaration. Mm. I'm not like, I don't have a to-do list like, oh, I got to run fast. I got to get bigger. I got to lift weights. I got to work out. I didn't do that. I just started being the best safety in the world. I started acting like it, almost like a rehearsal. 
almost like I was about to play this character called the best safety in the world. And I said, okay, what does the best safety in the world do? Are they married? What do they eat? What do they train? How do they say goodbye to their family? Do they have a family? What do they drive? What do they wear? How do they act? All of those character traits I started being on day one. So I didn't have to wait 20 years for my dream to come true. It started to come true on the opening morning of the declaration. No one knew about it, Brian, for many, many years until like 1984, 1985, people started to say, oh, you know, this dude's the best safety. Um, but I knew it 17 years before that. Crazy. Where did that come from? Where did that idea, is that just, were you just born with that? Did you pick that up off the stones? Was that a mom, dad? Was that a book you read? Where, where did that come from? One part of it I did pick up from my mom, my mom and my dad, but my dad, you know, we had to wake up really early on the farm. So he would wake us yeah. all up, all six kids by rubbing our backs in the morning. He would rub our backs and not easy, like rough. Like his hands were dirty and he, you know, imagine like a working cowboy. Sandpaper. Yeah. Yeah. This dude is rubbing your back like this and he's, he's, he's whispering in our ear, telling us we're the best and keep moving. And that, that was, that Hmm. was ingrained into our ears uh, from the day we were, you know, woken up all the way till we left that house by the time we were going to college. So, That was always the case. He always told us we were the best. Even I remember me and my brother striking out in Little League and my dad would be behind the backstop yelling at us, screaming that we were the best right after we struck out. And the crowd and the other parents are like, who is this nut? <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. And then our yeah. teammates are like, you're, what are, is your dad crazy? You're the worst player on our team. And he's telling you you're the best. That's how that that was one one thing that really, you know, solidified every time I made a declaration thereafter. It always had the word the best in it, the term the best. Love it. Still does. The best. They made it into the book. Yeah. Yeah. That's what a legacy. Yeah. That's like my mother. My mother, God bless her. She's 91. And uh, we're on the home stretch at this stage back in Ireland. But, you know, every day of my life, she told me you can do it. You can do it, Bryony. That was her tale. You can do it. And just relentless. And it was, I'm, I'm getting ready. They're going into a care home at this stage of the game. And, you know, they've lived in the same house for 65 years. And, um, you know, I was leaving and she's like, you can do it, Bryony. Oh, you got a big conference. You can do it. And I'm like, she's still doing it. You know, I'm, I'm a grandfather myself now. And she's still pumping that good stuff into me, you know, and it's, it's invaluable. And I know we have hundreds of thousands of people listening here today. And maybe they didn't have that from a dad. and Maybe they didn't have that from a mom. But the good news is that that stuff's still available to you in many, many sources in many, many ways. So that's, that's brilliant. So the first thing is you make the declaration, then you start being it. What's another insight you have on declaration? Just behavior because you're bringing it into mm-hmm. existence. You don't have to wait. There's no to-do list. Everyone always makes these to-do lists. I got to do this. I got to do No, forget about all the doing. Start being it. And as soon as you start being it, you start behaving in a certain manner. You're mm-hmm. behaving like the best in the world behave. Right. You know, like but it, 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 uh, when I, when I be, wanted to be the play, a playwright and a stage performer, right? That was 
I that I had no experience in that world at all. Mm. So I just said, I declared, I'm going to be the best in the world at this of my age group of my generation. I'm going to be the best at this. And I had no, I didn't know how I didn't care how, but you know what I did? I went to the best. I went to Al Pacino who was Mm -hmm. the best stage performer of his time in 1990. Mm -hmm. When I made this declaration, I said, Hey man, you got to help me. What do I do? Tell me what I should be, what I should start doing. What kind of hours do I spend here or there? Where's my time to be spent? And he told me, he broke it down. 15 years, he said, it would take you 15 years. If you're going to be the best of your generation, you got a late start, son. You've been playing football. Mm-hmm. We got to get you, we got to get you on your butt on a stage and in classes and in training with voice and writing and movement for 15 years and I go cool I'll do it let's do it and I did and you know 15 years later that's what the New York Times said they said this is the most powerful play of the last decade a play that I Mm. wrote and a play that I'm the only guy in so right and I believe they turned that into a movie is that right is there they're looking to make that play into a movie now yeah it got bought as a movie from a guy named uh, a guy named Frank Darabont who wrote and directed the Shawshank Redemption, The oh, Green wow. Mile. He wrote Saving Private Ryan. He wrote Collateral. He's got this show on TV called The Walking Dead. Yeah. He, he saw the play, bought the rights, and then hired me to write the screenplay. Um, so, yeah, that's in development <laughs> now. So it's crazy. It. I mean, it's, that's, it's absolutely that's crazier crazy. than being in the NFL, just so you know. That's, that's crazier. Because those two, those two boots don't normally go on the same pair of feet. You know? <laughs> that's, what they, that's what they told me. They said, no, this can't be. And I'm like, okay, right? here we go. So you put the time in, you put the effort in, you made the declaration. How does a declaration need to be founded? I mean, you know, there's people who have used affirmation in the, the most abusive way possible. There's people who, you know, affirm, like Shaquille O'Neal affirming he wants to be a jockey, right? So the declaration has to have some root in what can be. Where do you think is the line for people? I mean, have you ever declared things and you turn back and went, ah, you know, maybe I wasn't cut out for that? Or do you need some kind of evidence to say I might have this in me to do what I'm about to declare? I've never really had any evidence before I made the declaration. I just saw something that moved me. Like I saw somebody play this position called safety that was really moving to me. Like I got, mm. like, it was like an art form to me. I go, I want to be right. that. I want to do that. See, I, I call that the tuning fork, right? Like a tuning fork goes off and it's like, ooh, you yeah. know, you, and there's a deep sense of resonance with it. Yeah, that's, that's how I've written the declarations that I've written. You know, I was always mm. moved by storytelling, by somebody on stage mm. who was playing a character that I was moved by when I sat in the audience. And I go, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to... Mm. So, you know, make a living at being on a stage and playing a character. I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to move people because I knew I could move people physically. Like in football, I knew 100,000 people would stand up and boo me or cheer me based on where mm-hmm. the stadium was. Um, right. But I wanted to have that not in a stadium, not on a football field. I would. I wanted mm-hmm. to learn how to do that with my words and with my body movements. 
mm-hmm. wanted to be able to do that. And that's why that, you know, that was the, that was really the second declaration. Did you go to some plays and just sit there and go, or watch a movie or something and go, Ooh, that that's it for me. I mean, was there one particular or was it just over a period of time? It wasn't one. It was several. I remember going to them in high school, but obviously I was, I was a jock yeah. in high school. So I didn't, I didn't join the theater club, you know, that <laughs> right. Yeah. And but, uncool. That would be uncool. Yeah. Right. I was just moved by the theater in particular mm. stories and then the ability to be something on stage that moved an audience. I really liked that. Mm. And I just wanted to be mm. able to do that. And it turns out you can do that. I mean, there's, you can learn how to do that. And very few people know how to do it. Most people wing it. That would be like yeah. winging, um, fighting Mike Tyson. Like I'm going to get in the yeah. ring with Mike yeah. Tyson without any fight background and just wing it up here and see how I how it turns out. Well, that ain't going to turn out yeah. very well, right? <laughs> and and people think they can get away with that on the stage, and you just you can't. And it depends on the environment, right? It's like there's some people will trade on certain things in an environment like that. I mean, I've done twenty five hundred seminars over the past thirty years, and you can see when someone is going through the motions. You can see when someone is given something of themselves, and I always say. If you're not stirred yourself, how in the heck are you going to stir an audience? If it doesn't move you, if it doesn't stir your soul, how in the heck are you ever supposed to reach somebody else? And most people aren't willing to pay the price because to really do it well, you got to give a little bit of yourself. And uh, it's a big price to pay. And um, I've been doing it a long time. And, you know, like you say, it's, it's kind of cool to hear someone like yourself verbalize it. It's uh, what a transition to go from that world into this world. Similar in my own world, you know, I went from this real estate guy to this speaking guy, but it does get down to, you know, you have those moments, you have those experiences. I actually spoke at somebody's wedding. I spoke at somebody's wedding and I had them all in the palm of my hand. And I was like, huh. And my wife comes up to me and she goes, uh, that's kind of a gift. You might want to look into that. Oh, really? Then I started honing it from there. Well, the Irish are, what I was told by my mentor <laughs> is the Irish are the best storytellers. Yep. I'm Irish. Yeah. Well, no <laughs> question. Well, the Irish by nature, I was just home there for a couple of weeks. And um, in the old west of Ireland, you had every village had a couple of things. You had, you know, every pub had a little band and every pub had a, what was called a Shanachie. And a Shanachie is a Gaelic for a storyteller. And at some point in time in the night, everybody's drinking and talking and singing music and whatever else. And at some point in time, everything just stops. And the Shanachie tells a story and starts Fado Fado, which is a long time ago. And silence. And, you know, I I think one of the dynamics, you know, you're talking about it now. I think in the world we live in today, and I think, you know, one of your passions is to help people become better communicators. And one of the ways to be a better communicator is to become a better storyteller. And I think, you know, with the Instagram world and the Snapchat and the TikToks and the you know, everything's so visually stimulating and draining at the same time. I think powerful communication is more powerful than ever before is the power of story. Thanks, Brian. There's so much here that we'll pick up right where you left off in just a couple of days. See you next time. May the road rise up to meet you and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.